Good morning. Hear the word of God from Matthew 16, 13 to 20, and 18, 15 to 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do the people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my, ch my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Matthew 18. If your brothers or sisters sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they do not, will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and, they will and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Oh, it's so good to hear you. Let me say that again. Good morning, church. Pretty much since I've started preaching here at Waypoint Church, I've kind of begun each and every time of my time here preaching the sermon with that kind of greeting. I'll say something similar to that one. I may say, good morning, church. I may say, good morning, family. I may say, good morning, church community. I may say any one of those kind of combination of words. But typically, I, that's my kind of go-to. I say, good morning, church. That's right. What do I mean by that word? What do I mean by that when I say good morning church? For me, there's so much wrapped up in that little word church. For me, when I say good morning church, I feel something akin to a Sunday morning when I was growing up where I would wake up late because I stayed up way too late on Saturday reading a book or playing video games or something. And I would burst into the kitchen and my parents would be up drinking coffee and we'd be about to leave to go to McDonald's. That was like a tradition. We'd go to McDonald's breakfast right before church service. And we'd say good morning to them, and they would say good morning to me. And it was a way of just greeting amongst family. And when I get up here, when I say good morning, church, I feel like that's what I'm doing. I feel like we're greeting amongst family. I get to say good morning. I get to be like, all that's entailed in it, all that involved, all the emotion, the safety, the comfort, the feelings of nostalgia, all that wrapped up in the one when we say good morning, church. We're basically saying good morning to our family. And I feel at home and at rest amongst you. But I know that for a lot of people, church is a trigger word. I'm fully aware that church carries trauma and hurt for a lot of people, and it absolutely breaks my heart. This past Friday, a few of us gathered together to have a time of prayer and lament over the hurts and abuses and pain and trauma that people have felt in the church. And so for some of you, when I say good morning church, you flinch a little. If that's you, 
And if that's you listening, if that's you in here, if that's you watching with us, I want you to know, and I would love for you to know that when we prayed together this past Friday night, we hurt alongside you. We wept over the wounds you felt in the church through what we call family. And we mourn and lament together with you. And I'm sorry for the way those in the church have scarred you and have hurt you. And my prayer for you today is that you don't see church as an ugly word or an ugly place, but what it was meant to be. And you let the healer who have founded this church start a beautiful process of healing in your own life. Knowing that healing doesn't occur like that often, that oftentimes healing means going into the hard places with an incredible redeemer who's going to walk you through and start a process of healing inside of you. See, the church is a, sometimes a confusing place. For some, it's celebration. Some, it's family. Some, it's hurt. How could it be all those things? Dorothy Day said, though she is a harlot at times, she is our mother. Though she is a harlot at times, she is our mother. Talking about the church. St. Cyprian said, I cannot, he cannot have God for his father who is not the church for his mother. And I love both these quotes from these two believers. Both these quotes show this profound understanding of the role of the church and how important the church is to the life of believers, but also shows a profound understanding that the church is at times a harlot, that language used. I liken it more often to the idea of a church. I don't know if this is you, but you guys ever look in the mirror and sometimes you're like, oh yeah, I look good today. But oftentimes, if it's like me, I'm like, oh man, I'm struggling. My hair is just not right. I can't get my, this cowlick thing to look normal. This shirt doesn't fit good. And I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have ate all that pizza last night or whatever it may be. And sometimes you're not happy with the way you look. Sometimes, guys, I feel like that's the church too. There's things I'm like celebrating. Yes, the church is doing godly work. It's advancing the kingdom. But there are times I'm like, this is just this doesn't look right. This is not good. Now there's, today and for the next few weeks, we're going to dive into what is the church? What does it mean in our context? How do we interact with the church? What do, what's our call in, this, in a body to, when we talk about what the local church is? We're going to kind of just dive into that. Today, I'm just going to be honest with you. We're going to do a little bit of a survey of the whole Bible. It might be a little bit more academic today just because I want to get you to have a firm footing on what the church really is. And we, how that, this is not something that's just a New Testament construct. This is not just a Western cultural construct. But this is something that's been in existence. God's called it and put it into existence since the Old Testament on. And this is something for us to be a part of. The church has been and will always be God's appointed means of advancing his kingdom. As so I want to paint, show you that to you guys, I want to kind of give you a quick survey of what that looks like today. There are two ways we use the word church typically. Church universal and church local. Universal church means the church is, is all Christians everywhere at all times. That's church universal. Church local is a local church is a particular group of Christians who assemble together, who live life together, who worship together, who are called to a mission together. Right? So church universal is a thing that binds us with believers in Gambia and Malaysia. The church local is where we practice life and ministry here at Waypoint Church. So quick question. Which usage do you think occurs most frequently in the Bible? Church universal or church local? Go ahead, shout it out if you want to make a guess. It's okay. No one will judge you. I will judge you a little bit. I'm just kidding. Which one is most commonly used? Church universal or church local in the Bible? Local, universal? I heard both. 
Thai? <laughs> church local, actually, is by far more commonly used than church universal. The Greek word ecclesia, which means gathering or assembly or congregation, appears 114 times in the New Testament. So obviously the local church is important to the New Testament writers. As a matter of fact, most of the New Testament was addressed to churches, local ones, and even some regional ones. The letters were meant to be read, understood in light of the local body together, not individually. And so this is idea of the local church is so important to the New Testament writers. So let's look into the Old Testament first and see what, this, what do we mean when we say the church? What do we mean when we say the assembly? What do we mean when we say ecclesia? I don't know if you noticed, Danny, in his introduction, really said the word assembly a lot of times. That wasn't intentional. That wasn't just like, you know, he didn't just say, well, why do you say assembly so many times? You know, some of you guys might have been thinking that. It's because today we want to show you how important assembly is a part of actual church. In the Old Testament, the primary Hebrew word for church is kehal, which refers to the regular, visible, institutional assembly of God's people. In the Old Testament, they gathered for religious purposes, though sometimes for other purposes like national defense, which actually is considered a religious purpose in the Old Covenant. Deuteronomy 9.10, Moses says this, The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments of the Lord that the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire, on the day of assembly, or kehal. The Old Testament body of believers are those who are assembled and made up the people of God by the voice of God himself. He called them out, just as when God, in creation God spoke and all things came to being. At Sinai, God spoke and he created his covenant people out of the refugees from Egypt. He declared that he will be their God and they will be his people. They became a covenant assembly to represent him to the world. Derek Thomas says this, not only was the assembly of Israel gathered before him, the holy ones of heaven attended the Lord of hosts. Sinai became the throne of God of heaven and earth. Assembled around him were all the holy ones of heaven. Gathered at his feet were his saints, the holy ones of earth. The Kehal is a solemn assembly because it stands before God. They gather the Kehal sacred because it is a duly constituted gathering of the covenant people of God to hear the voice of God and even to meet with God himself at the door of the tent of meeting. It is when Israel is convened as a Kehal that God himself dwells in their midst. Derek Thomas goes on and says, the covenant community is a worshiping assembly. Now, this is a beautiful picture of what it means. God has, out of these refugees of people, he gathered them together, called them into covenant relationship, said that you will be my representatives to the world. You are a holy nation, a holy assembly, called to represent me, who I am, my nature, my goodness, my grace, my love, my character to the world. That is your job as my covenant people. And here are the laws that make up what this looks like. The laws that separate you from the rest of the people. This is who you are as a representative of me to the world. David and Solomon gathered in the solemn assembly. In 1 Chronicles 29.10, David blesses the Lord before the Kehal. And in Psalm 68, we read a parallel of, of worship between in heaven and worship on earth and worship at Sinai. It's an impression that God is in the midst of his hosts of heaven while his people are worshiping him in holy assembly. Later, part of Joel's promise of restoration of the people of God includes the sounding of the trumpet, a call to worship, the convening of the solemn assembly. Now, these are just few examples of a visible, formal assembly of God's people as the Kehal to worship God and to praise God of the covenant and represent him in the world. 
So on the whole, the use of Kael in the Old Testament scripture points to a concrete concept, con- conception of the covenantal community of God's people who when gathered together make up the covenant assembly. This is his covenant to his people that God is their God and God will be their God of their children. In the New Testament, that word Kael is translated by the Greek word ecclesia, assembly. And sometimes with the ver- Greek word electoi, which so, so elect assembly or elected assembly. And as I said, it occurs 114 times, typically to a local identifiable circle of believers. Acts 5.1, the great fear seized the whole ecclesia, the assembly. Paul speaks about the churches in the province of Asia, the churches in Galatia, Asia, Macedonia, Judea, in Acts 15.41, 1 Corinthians, and so on. And these passages refer to local assemblies when the New Covenant Scriptures speaks about the church, it becomes apparent that assembly or congregation is at the forefront. Andrew Murray says this, the largest number of occurrences of the word ecclesia are classified as instances of particularization where ecclesia is used to describe the church in Jerusalem, Antioch, Ephesus, Asencria, at Laodicea, and Thessalonica. So we see the New Testament ecclesia is being used to describe the assembly. So, when we, so we know that when the church in our concept of church goes all the way back to the Old Testament and flows through scripture and it's found in the New Testament. Now another question for you guys. Did you know that Jesus himself only says the word church, that Ecclesia word assembly, church, twice? Do you know where? Say that again. Peter? To Peter, right? Here's a hint. We read it earlier. <laughs> so just in case you guys weren't paying attention. Any, I was paying attention when you read. It was our reading earlier that Jesus only uses the word church twice in his ministry. It's in the two readings there, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. According to New Testament scholar Janine Brown, Jesus only mentions Ecclesia twice. This, the, um, this makes the collection so much clearer, and I want you guys to hear this. This beautiful connection between what God is doing in the Holy Assembly and to the Ecclesia Church as we know now is this beautiful image, but if you don't get the connection, I want to give you this other illustration that I read from a guy named Jonathan Lehman. And it's, I'm not going to read for him what, word for word what he wrote, but it's a pretty big, long illustration that he shares, that he does a great job sharing, that I'm going to share with you today. And this is what Jonathan Lehman says. He's a New Testament scholar and a, a editor for a newspaper and a professor. Once upon, a time, once upon a time, there was a kingdom called Israel. As in all kingdoms, Israel had a king and a land and a set of laws. But unlike most kingdoms, the citizens of Israel had an especially important job to do. Israel was to represent God on earth. It's as if God sent out a press release to all the nations, explaining that Israel was his, and the nations just need to watch Israel to see what he's like. Was God merciful or unmerciful, just or unjust? Watch this nation to find out, said the press release. He gave them an elaborate set of laws so they would know precisely what to do. He set them apart and set up holiness for them. But sadly, Israel failed abysmally at this job. Over and over again, they became just like the world. Then one day came along a man named Jesus who said at least four kingdom-toppling things. One, he said God was firing Israel. They were losing their job of representing him. Two, that Jesus is a full representation of who the Father is. He was, in fact, God and the perfect image of God. Three, God was establishing a kingdom not as a place like Israel, but as his rule over a particular set of people. And this kingdom was for people who were repentant, poor in spirit, humble like children. And four, 
The citizens of his kingdom, whom he would purchase through his death on the cross, would join him in representing God on earth. Yet a kingdom like this with no land and no geographical boundaries had a serious political dilemma. Anyone could claim to be a citizen in this kingdom, and Jesus predicted the number of imposters would. So this was, as you can imagine, a public relations nightmare. Imposters could bring the king's name into disrepute. They could um, just say that they're part of the king or try to teach what, as if the king was teaching them. Remember, this kingdom was supposed to be for those who are repentant, poor in spirit, humble like children. A new society, if you will. But if literally anyone, all by himself or herself, could just start claiming to be a citizen, there was going to be a mess. Or the new society wouldn't work well if everybody just claimed they heard from God alone and they could do whatever they wanted. The citizens of the previous administration were marked off by the fact that they lived in a particular land. And even when they left the land, they had a number of distinctives such as circumcision, the Sabbath, and various dietary restrictions. But how would a landless, borderless kingdom like Jesus' mark off its citizens? Who would exercise the border patrol when there are no borders? Who has the authority for publicly declaring who is a citizen and who is not? Now this goes back into this idea that I would preach over and over again. If you guys remember Waypoint Church, and I always say this, that we are made in the image of God. And how did, back in the day in the ancient Near East, the way suzerains, emperors, kings, warlords would declare their territory is that they would set up images of themselves, statues, put their faces upon money, and say, this is where my rule and reign is. Right? So that's what they would do. So if you walk into a land, you're like, oh, I wonder who rules this land. Maybe I'll take this for myself. Oh, I see a statue of King... I'm going to say it, I shouldn't, but I'll say King Billy. That's a horrible name for a king from the ancient Near East, but that's the first name that I always have to say. I don't know why. But King Billy's land is here. This is King Billy's land. I will not set up my land because King Billy's more powerful than me. I know this is his land because his statue is there, because images of him are there, because his face is on the money here. Guys, when God created you as image bearers for him, what he was doing, and he called you to stewardship over the land, he's literally calling you to his advancement of his kingdom. And when Jesus says make disciples of all nations, he's literally calling you to make more image bearers of him, thus advancing his kingdom. Are you following me with me so far? He's called us to be kingdom people, a part of a new nation. And the way we advance his kingdom is by seeing his images everywhere. So that we can look and say this place is ruled in, under the rule and reign of a good, good king. And people who look and walk and act like Jesus, images of God, you see justice and mercy and grace. And so that was the job of Israel, but Israel failed, and now it's a new job for us. But part of the job, part of this beautiful new kingdom is God's established some rules. God's established some means of helping it advance, helping it grow. Specifically, in one thing in particular is he's established it upon the teaching and upon the rule of the apostles. Right? You saw Matthew 16, Peter says, you're the Messiah, and Jesus says some crazy words. He says, upon this rock, a little play on, play on names, play on the word Peter, which means rock, and saying that on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now this is, once again, the first time Jesus uses the word church here. And here he's talking about the universal church. He's talking about all of church, all Christendom, the advancing of the kingdom that will not be overcome by anything. Hades will not overcome it. Death will not overcome it. Jesus is building this end time assembly. But how will, will he build it? He said he'll build it on this rock. What rock? 
Now, theologians have debated long whether the rock is Peter himself, as some maybe Catholic type might believe. Others, often Protestants, believe that it's actually on the statement of what Peter makes, saying that he is the Messiah. But I think there's actually elements of both in this. The theologian Edmund Clowney writes, the confession cannot be separated from Peter, neither can Peter be separated from his confession. Jesus will build his church not on the words, not on people, but on people who believe the right words, namely who believe the gospel, that the word himself became flesh. Jesus will build his church on confessors, those who confess the truth, but also built on them. And then Jesus gave Peter and the apostles the keys to the kingdom, which gave Peter the authority to do what Jesus has done, is to affirm true confession. That's what Jesus did. He affirmed Peter's true confession. Now Jesus is giving Peter and the disciples authority to affirm true confession. And this beautiful interaction between heaven and earth in this passage is amazing to consider. Peter rightly confesses who Jesus was, and Jesus said his answer came from Father in heaven. And though Jesus was on earth, he spoke on behalf of heaven. And then the very next breath, he authorized Peter to do the very same thing, to represent what's bound and loosed in heaven by binding and loosing on earth. Biblical scholars sometimes talk about binding and loosing as a judicial or rabbinic activity, which is kind of helpful for understanding this idea. For instance, a rabbi might decide whether some laws applied to or bound a particular person or a certain set of circumstances. Jesus essentially gave the apostles this kind of authority, the authority to to stand in front of a confessor to consider uh, his or her confession, to consider his or her life, to announce an official judgment on heaven's behalf. Is this the right confession? Is that a true confessor? In other words, the apostles had heaven's authority for declaring who on earth is a kingdom citizen and therefore represents heaven. There's a quote by, um, I can't remember her name all of a sudden, Janine, is it, is it next on the screen? I actually printed out my old sermon copy. I forgot that I had to print out my new one. Because I knew I added this quote here. Is, is, is the, do you guys have the quote for the next quote on here? All right, I totally forgot to do that. No worries, no worries. But uh, one of the New Testament scholars, named, uh, I can't remember her last name all of a sudden, I just mentioned it earlier, talks about this idea of this loosing and, 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 and binding, this idea of, um, oh, okay, I, I should share it later. So never mind, I messed up. Excuse me. It just fits so perfectly there, I decided to go back to it, but I'll, I'll skip it. This New Testament, I'll just say, New Testament scholar Janine Brown shares an illustration that helps us understand this concept of loosing and binding. This is her analogy. An analogy that we might offer for binding and loosen is the function of the judicial branch in the United States. The branch of government neither creates nor enforces law. Rather, it interprets if and how the various laws apply in specific circumstances. And so I love this way as Jesus is establishing a church, he's giving us an ability to, to learn how to walk and live in this new community, this new kingdom that he's called us to live in. So in many ways, Jesus in Matthew 16 established a church and he gave it the authority of the keys to continue building itself, effectively the authority to add to its number to affirm the true confessors. The authority of the keys is the authority to assess a person's gospel works and render a judgment saying, yes, you are part of this building that we're building. Then two chapters later, Jesus uses the word church for the second time. And we see it here in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. This is a passage where it says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. I'm just going to read this whole passage because I just think this is healthy for us as a church to listen to again. 
If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by a testimony of two or three witnesses. Guys, can I say this? If somebody wrongs you, somebody hurts you, can I tell you the first thing, place not to go to is to tell all your friends about it? Can I say that again? I know you just I just want advice. I just want somebody to pray for me. But can I tell you, some of that might be true, but can I tell you that it's so much more important. If it's your brother or your sister, just go to them first. You want advice? I'll give you advice. Go to them. That's my advice. If your brother or sister in the church body wrongs you, hurts you, upsets you, guys, can, can you please just hear the words of the scripture? Go to them first. And if it doesn't work, something happens, there's a miscommunication, there's an issue, bring some people along. Bring, I love this passage. This is so uh, Jewish in tradition about this. You know, he said, hey, bring, some, bring a small group leader, bring a friend, bring an elder, bring a pastor, be like, listen, we're just having some trouble communicating this. We're having some issues with this. Can we, can we talk about this together? And mind you, this is examples of people wronging you. This is not because that person annoys you. Do you hear me? I mean, you guys with me so far, right? This is if somebody wrongs you, right? It says, then go, bring other. Then it says, um, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And what I mean by the church, it doesn't mean, hey, uh, here's an email to the whole church body. Uh, it doesn't mean put it on the realm so that everybody can read it. It doesn't mean, hey, uh, Lawrence, excuse me, I got something to say this morning. Danny wronged me. No, no, no. It's, hey, bring it to the leadership of the church. Bring it so that they can confront and help you walk in this together in love and in grace. Help you process this. And then it says, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. What Does that mean punch them in the face? Does it mean, you know, hate them? That's not what it says, right? It says treat them as you would a pagan. In other words, they're no longer a part of church community, but you're still called to love them the way Jesus loved them. You guys with me so far? But truly, I tell you, whatever this language, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Then I love this. Again, I truly tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Once again, this passage begins with this picture of a brother sinning and sins is, is, step, is out of, stepping out of his kind of confession of faith. This is he committing a sin that doesn't seem in character to a people of God, rather a representative of God. And he, Jesus recommends four rounds of confrontation. We already went over round one, round two, round three. But then it says treat him like an outsider. That's called church discipline. Now I know, I'm going to say this. People hate that term. Because I've seen it and I've heard it abused over and over and over again. I've heard the stories, guys. I've wept with those who've been hurt over church discipline. I've been there. That's why I want to reiterate here at Waypoint Church, when we say church discipline, what we're, what we, which we've never actually had to enact yet, but if we ever did, enacting church discipline does not mean we say, oh, that person's an outcast that we never talked to, that we talk badly about, or that person doesn't exist anymore. No, that person's somebody who's walking outside in sin, who is wronging other people, not living a life that is uh, compatible or 
go con- like that correlates or matches up to the faith they confess. And in that situation, we say, hey, how, how can we withhold church membership from you in a way that wins you back because you miss out on the beautiful community and the purpose and the call of this church body together? We want you back. We want you to love our community. We want you to love accountability. We want you to love the purpose that you've called to. And we want you to know that an arm by itself doesn't, it's not much good. A foot by itself is not much good. But when they're together in the assembly, it's incredible. We want you here. Jesus then invokes his keys of the kingdom again. Whatever is bound, he's not addressing the apostles of the universal church here, though. He's addressing, envisioning a local church body. The local church, it appears, has, given, has been given these keys of the kingdom. As a result, the local church has heaven's authority for declaring who is a representative of God in their midst, in their culture, in their time. Jesus authorized the local church to stand in front of a confessor, to, to consider a confessor's confession, to consider his or her life, and to announce an official judgment on heaven's behalf. This is more earth and heaven talk. It presents a clear picture of authority in the context here. The ability to remove someone from membership supposes that there's an authority to assess a person's gospel words and matches it up to their gospel deeds and render a judgment. Is it an absolute authority? No. The church is not an absolute authority any more than the state is. But Christ does mean for Christians to submit to the oversight of a local church by virtue of their citizenship in his kingdom. And will the local church exercise their authority perfectly, these keys that has been given perfectly? No. It will make mistakes just as every other authority established by Jesus makes mistakes. As such, the local church will be an imperfect representation of Christ's end time gathering. But the fact that it makes mistakes just as as presidents and parents do does not mean it's, it's without an authoritative mandate. Let me say that part again real quick. Just because the church makes mistakes does not mean it doesn't have authority. Do you hear me? Here's the problem that we feel in, the, in our culture is that we, we've seen churches make mistakes with authority. And with much authority, we've seen much mistakes. But just because they make mistakes doesn't mean it takes away their authority. Just like a parent, every parent that I know, me included, makes a million mistakes. But if my kid pointed out to me and said, hey, dad, because um, you make these mistakes, I don't value your authority. Your authority means nothing to me. Number one, I don't think he'll ever say that. But if he did, I'd be like, uh-uh, boy. No, I'm just kidding. We can't say that to the government. We can't say that to presidents. We can't say that to our bosses. Just because they make mistakes doesn't mean they, don't have, they still have authority. It's just imperfect. Does this mean that the, what local church does on earth actually changes a person's status in heaven? No. The church's job is like an ambassador or like an embassy. I'm already a citizen of a nation. The embassy's job is just to affirm my status. Does that make sense? It doesn't make me a citizen of a nation by going to the embassy. The embassy's job is just to affirm my status, to say, oh, you lost your passport? I go to the embassy. And I'm like, hey, um, I need a passport because I can't get out of the country, I can't get in, what, what I do. And they're like, oh, okay, they can't make me a citizen. I'm already a citizen. But embassy affirms my status as a citizen. Does that make sense? 
So do you see the call of the local church? Do you see the importance of it? Do you fully understand what Dorothy uh, Day and Cyprian was saying, that the church is such a vital part of our walk, and it, it affirms our call. That's why baptism, in the way we met and we do it, the baptism is an affirmation of a confessor saying, I confess, and here's the rock of my belief. Here's the words that I confess. Baptism is an establishment of a confessor into the body of the church. Do you see it? Do you hear it? This is the local church. And guys, even in this horribly imperfect state, she's still my mother. And we must gather together as a local church. What are the eyes and ears and feet and arms good for if they aren't gathered together? You guys ever seen Voltron? No, anybody? Voltron, yeah. Power Rangers, Power Rangers. Uh, Captain Planet, any of these wonderful cartoons. I always wondered, why don't they always just immediately call Captain Planet? Why don't they just start off as Voltron? Right? Why don't they just go ahead and start off as Captain Planet? Or why don't they go ahead and just start off as like the hero? Because they always start off and their Power Rangers are by themselves and they try to win, but they always get beat up. Or Voltron by themselves trying to win, they get beat up. But then all of a sudden, oh, we're losing. Let's call Voltron, let's assemble. Or I don't know why they don't always just start off. Guys, we're like Voltron. We're better together. We're called to be together. Why go off and try to win on your own? One of the fallacies, one of the faults of the Western Christian church, and, I, and don't get me wrong, I love the fact that we've done a good job of like, take, trying to take ownership and personal ownership of our own personal walks with God and faith. That's great, and I love that. I'm so glad we do that. One of the big faults that that's kind of led to is that you made, we made walking with Jesus a very personal thing that doesn't involve community. All I need is me and my Bible and I'm good to go. No. God has always intended, God has always planned and always meant for the Christian life to be done in community with the assembly, the body together. Do you hear that? And I hope you hear that in scripture. I hope it's not just my words that you're hearing. I always say this, Waypoint Church, that if I preach something that is contrary to scripture, if I preach something that is wrong, God will have a conversation with me, I will be judged by him. But I want you to always challenge anything that I say against scripture. Because he's going to have a conversation with you. So I want you to not just accept anything a preacher, because he has a pulpit or has a platform, says. You should always challenge it to scripture. Does that make sense? So I hope you see that the assembly, the body, is what we're called to be in together. Hebrews 10.25 says this, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We see when the assembly is a key component of being in the church or the ecclesia together, the kihal, we've lost something in our big push and movement of saying the church isn't a building or a gathering, it's the work of the people. I know why we push so hard in this manner, but because our churches so often in America become museums or social clubs or just gatherings. We wanted our focus, our mission back, but we started throwing out the baby with the bathwater and started getting unbiblical. Assembly, gathering to worship God is the key to such a part of being the church together. And the author of Hebrews knew the persecution that the believers were about to face and were facing. That's why chapter 11, as an example to the believers or people who by faith endured so much, is meant to encourage his believers who are being persecuted. So it's significant then that the author tells these persecuted Christians not to forsake gathering together, even if it will lead to more persecution. He's calling them to put their very lives on the line by visibly assembling together. 
We're trivializing gathering. We're trivializing what the church is meant to be when we say we don't need each other, we don't need to gather. The church is God, people of God assembled together under the authority of the word of God and for the advancement of his kingdom. God, through his word, has ordained that we unite together to accomplish these purposes. The organized church is not a mistake, but instead the biblical and apostolic institution for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Let me say these words by Edmund Clowney. The church's agenda, our community agenda, is Christ's purpose or agenda for us. It is his prayer that he prayed asking for God's kingdom come. The future consummation of the kingdom is the reign of God in all affairs of his creation. A future that not only sustains the church in its present existence and activity, but makes its task necessary. If the kingdom comes where God's will is done, as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, then the church must become the present center of this reality. The portal, if you will, which becomes not merely a view of coming attraction, but the very means through which the kingdom actually permeates the world. And as Paul would remind us, the church is God's means to this end. But it's not the end itself. It's not even the goal of missions. It is the indispensable agent of God's mission to the world. So my people, as we spend the next few weeks diving into what it means to be the church in unity together, my prayer is that you see it biblically the call to the local body, the importance of gathering together. How beautiful it is when our hands and feet, arms and eyes and ears and nose and everything works together as we gather together for his worship and for his glory and to accomplish his purposes. And for those of you who've been hurt by the church, those of you who've been hurt by authorities and people you've looked up to, those of you who've experienced spiritual abuse, my prayer for you is that here in this place, not because we're perfect, by no means are we perfect, but here I pray that by the Spirit of God and by His goodness and grace, that you can start a healing process to understand what the church and what it really is. A community of imperfect believers who confess the name of Jesus, who are gathered together to see His kingdom come, who choose, who desire to represent who God is not by our self-sufficiency, by utterly expressing our need of his strength and grace. And as we walk in this, may his kingdom come, may we see other people look like Jesus around us. So my prayer as we dive into this series, that's who we become. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church. And it's all its imperfections, God, for all its ways, the fact that even it's, at times it may be a harlot. God, we thank you for the church universal, for the, the connection, for the body of believers that you called us to be with. And God, we thank you for the local church. God, for the way that we can be representatives together, together that we can confess together, that you've given us authority together. God, to see your kingdom move in this place. Holy Spirit, will you do a reviving work? Not just, will you do a cleansing work in the church in America? Holy Spirit, will you do a cleansing work where areas of spiritual abuse, God, areas of trauma, areas of hurt, God, will you move and cleanse? And God, will you do a healing work for those who've been hurt? And God, in this church, God, may we love you and love others well. 
May we express our utter need of you. May we look like you, Jesus, in our actions, in our words, in our deeds. Receive all the praise, God, for you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.